0: Thank you for joining the Georgia Chamber Podcast. For 105 years, we have been the leading voice of business in the state of Georgia. Through these podcasts, we want to help you better understand the issues facing our state and how your business can grow and prosper. Thanks for joining us. To learn more, go to www.gachamber.com.
1: Well, now I'm pleased to introduce uh, our first speaker of the week, which is Ashley Rick Stevenson. She's the vice president and national political director for our friends at the U.S. Chamber. Uh, Ashley, thanks for being with us today. We appreciate the partnership that we have with the U.S. Chamber. Uh, It's it's meant so much to so many of our congressional races uh, here in Georgia over the last few years. And really looking forward to hearing from you about what's happening, particularly in the U.S. Senate races around the country that... Our business community should care about just as much as we care about our own two Senate races right now.
2: Wonderful. Well, thank very much for the invitation to be here with you today, Chris. It's an exciting time in politics, and it's tough to believe that beyond the presidential race, there's a lot happening in federal politics. At the U.S. Chamber, we're really focused on the Senate races across the country. We believe it's very critical for the business community at large to protect what we call a pro-business majority in the Senate. So we're focusing on races across the country and issue advocacy campaigns since late last year, along with political endorsements. And there are a number of big races that a lot of money and time is being spent on right now. Key marquee races for the cycle are Colorado, Arizona, Maine, North Carolina, Iowa, two big races in your home state in Georgia. And there are more beyond that list. And I should note These are mostly all Republican defensive seats. So Republicans hoping to hold on to these seats that they currently represent.
1: Are there any seats? I want to come back to those races, but are there any seats out there now that the Democrats have that Republicans are trying to pick up in the country? What what are the Republicans' top priorities?
2: That's a great question, Chris. The most likely pickup opportunity for Republicans is not too far away from you in Alabama, currently represented by U.S. Senator Doug. And Coach Tommy, now the Republican nominee, that happened over the summer after a delayed runoff election, and just the general consensus in Washington and across the country is that it is likely that Coach Tuberville will win that race, just based on based on the math in the state alone.
1: Right. All right. So let, let's go out west. Um, Arizona, uh, very interesting race. I, at one of our meetings earlier in the year, you guys told us that Arizona could be the most expensive. Senate race in the country. I, I think Georgia will be pretty close to that, maybe North Carolina too, but tell us exactly what's happening in Arizona and what the dynamics out there, I'm curious, have changed so much from being a state that you know, was so solid with two Republican senators for a long time now to being really a, a toss-up.
2: So Maricopa County, just like a lot of other counties, and you're experiencing this in Georgia, is one of the fastest growing in the country. It's a very diverse set of demographics that's just, quite frankly, changing the political landscape. So that means that this is a state that is now in play in Maricopa County, and that's right around the Phoenix area is where the heart of the Population Center is. So this is starting to look like a toss up, not only in the U.S. Senate race, but also at the presidential campaign. So the amount of money that you brought up, Chris, is flowing straight from these presidential campaigns all the way down into the Senate races. And there you have Senator Martha McSally, who was appointed in a special setup. She immediately has to go back into cycle. This was after she had a huge Senate race in 2018 against Kirsten Cinema, lost by just a handful of votes, ends up getting the special, immediately goes into campaign mode, running against a former astronaut, Mark Kelly who's very popular, is raising money almost like it's a presidential race, if you look at some of the figures that he's putting up. And in addition to that, Senator McStally is just a prolific fundraiser. So and the amount of ads that have been going on in Arizona for months and months and, and now really is like what we're used to from Labor Day on in most states. The amount of money is incredible, and this is a must-win state for the president. He was just in Phoenix this week. There's going to be more visits from the vice president it's really happening in Arizona, a lot going on there this year.
1: All right, so let's drive north of there, Colorado, which was not on anyone's radar, I don't believe really, you know, a year and a half ago now, is really uh, centerpiece there with Cory Gardner's seat. What's, what are you seeing there?
2: Sure, so Senator Gardner first won this seat in 2014. It was a huge win and a big night for the business community. He's up for his pre election contest. He's facing Hickenlooper. He was mayor of denver a governor somebody who's also very popular in the state was running in the presidential race until he dropped out and just the political environment itself in colorado is not a place that's a particularly um, great place for republicans so to speak so senator gardner really has to outpace the president the president certainly is is not expected to win there and this is a race where both campaigns are really trying to run down the middle be an independent be very bipartisan Keep it focused on those kind of issues versus the typical red meat versus blue meat that you see everywhere else in the country. Definitely a tall order in that race, but Senator Gardner is extremely talented. He's run an amazing campaign. He's raising a lot of money. I think that this one could go right down to the bitter end.
1: Wow. All right, let's keep driving north. You didn't mention this race a minute ago, but it's one that it fascinates me because I do we spend a lot of time in Montana. That Montana Senate race. Um, I mean, you've really got kind of one of the few blue dog Democrats out there as the incumbent running against a very popular governor. So what does it look like from your perspective?
2: Sure. So that was really a recruiting win for the Democrats as they were able to get Governor Bullock to enter that race, similar to Hickenlooper, had been running in the presidential contest, decided to make the jump to the U.S. Senate almost at the last minute. But I will tell you that Senator Danes, and it's clear from the campaign he's been running, had been preparing for this to perhaps eventually happen. It did come to fruition. So just like in some of these other states, lots of money being spent. I can tell you we've been running issue advocacy spots up in Montana in support of Senator Danes and mentioning some of the really great work that he's done on behalf of the business community and encouraging him to keep it up and just the the cost of advertising in Montana, which is usually a relatively inexpensive state yeah. is just incredible right now. So they're seeing television commercials like they're not used to in that state whatsoever. It is one that the president won by 20 points in 2016, there was a third party candidate that got about 6% of the vote. We know Montana is a lot like a New Hampshire, so to speak, that very live free or die mentality. It's personality politics that really matters. there, much more so than just a partisan R or D behind your name as a candidate.
1: So it's really about the person there. Um, I'm surprised. I've talked to some friends in Iowa about the Senate race there. They still think that that Senator Ertz is is really going to take this race in the end, but it's really tightened up here in the last couple of weeks, hasn't it?
2: That's right. And it's to be expected in a race like this. You know, In Iowa, the agriculture community is so large and such a significant piece of the business community overall, and they've had a tough time for the last few years of tariffs and things like that. So there's also been a number of natural disasters that have occurred lately that hasn't been reported all that much, frankly, in the mainstream media. But the president's numbers have improved there. Senator Ernst hit 50 in an AARP poll that was out this week. That's a really big deal, a sign of very serious electoral strength. I think that she wins at the end of the day. But again, these Democrats across the country challenging the Republican senators are raising a lot of money. And that's the case in Iowa, too.
1: Right. So let's go all the way up to to north of you, up to Maine. Uh, what, What are the polls telling us today about that race?
2: This race has basically been tied for the last year or so, Chris. That said, Senator Collins was up by a couple of points after the start of the pandemic. She really delivered for her constituents. She led on the PPP plan, and that did not go unnoticed. Voters were very happy and receptive to it. She just really knows how to run a great campaign. She's an amazing senator. It's one that we've been focused on for a long time. And she's got just such a record of accomplishments that she continues to deliver for her constituents. I think at the end of the day, she pulls this off. It's going to go to the very end. And just like you mentioned spending in Arizona, we had been estimating in Maine that all in, it might be about $60 million on television. To put that into perspective, in previous Senate races, it's less than $10 that that gets spent there. We're now about to cross the $80 million threshold in Maine. So... If you own a small television station or even a billboard company, it's a good place to do business because you can't buy any ads there anymore.
1: Right. Uh, let's come down the coast to North Carolina. I tell you, you, know I remember when the U.S. Chamber got behind Tom Tillis. Uh, last cycle it was really the first I think Senate race outside of Georgia I got involved with. Tom has just been an inc- was an incredible speaker, has been an incredible senator, but he's really struggling to connect there in this cycle. What are you, any project, projections, predictions there?
2: This too just looks like a coin toss. It's a state that the president has to win. It's ultimately going to be the most expensive one in the entirety of the country. They have a number of media markets that are pretty expensive, just like you know how it is in Atlanta, so the cost of just doing business from a politics perspective is pretty steep in that state to begin with. In the demographics. We've seen this happening in North Carolina for the last 15 years. It's really come to pass where between Charlotte, Charlotte, all the way up to the Research Triangle and everywhere else, there are a lot of new folks who've moved into this state for one reason or the other. And again, that just makes it a little bit more of a challenging environment when you think about this from a pure partisan lens. I believe that Senator Tillis is ultimately going to win at the end of the day. I think that the results of this election could be tied to how President Trump performs. It's critical that the president wins and is able to be reelected, so they're leaving nothing on the table. Senator Tillis actually had a really great debate performance the other night. A lot of national press is covering that, the differences between he and his opponent. And I'll leave it by saying he continues to deliver for the business community across a host of different issues that aren't the kinds of things that we're hearing about on the cable news at night. They're not the most exciting, but they're the things that matter to families and workers in the state, particularly truly leading on issues related to veterans, military spouses, giving military families economic opportunity for better jobs. And that is not going unnoticed. And we've seen that for the last year in our research.
1: Well, I think Tom's done a great job, too, of working across the aisle, of really being a bipartisan, let me figure out how to get it done kind of guy. He's not seen by anyone that I know as being a real partisan out there or doing anything just for the sake of the, of the party. So hopefully that resonates well with the voters in North Carolina. Um, actually, I want to ask you just a little bit about the House. I know most of the focus of the U.S. Chamber is on these big Senate races. Um, I haven't seen any polling that suggests A path for Republicans to take back the House. Have you seen that opportunity? If so, how many seats are we talking about having to to switch?
2: I like to start answering this question, Chris, by saying as a pollster and somebody who studies numbers in this era, I'm not willing to bet on anything, particularly in the Trump era. Um, He and his team have showed us that they can make things happen that conventional wisdom says is impossible. There are a number of really right pickup opportunities for Republicans in what we call Trump districts. These are seats, and there's roughly 20 or so across the country, currently held by Democrats today, that the president won in 2016. The big question from a mathematical perspective is, will many of these voters still be with the president like they were four years ago, and will it help those down-ballot tickets? History tells us that when a president wins re-election, they usually pick up about six or seven seats with them. Republicans need to pick up more than 20. So again, I like to come back to saying I'm not willing to bet on anything in 2020 because we continue to be proven wrong by everything that's happening.
1: Right. Well, you, uh, we didn't talk about Texas and, you know, it's funny, Texas kind of like Georgia, but it keeps saying it's going to be blue, maybe it'll be purple this time. It always seems to push off another couple of years. What about the voter intensity? I know that's something uh, I've heard you report on before that Republican intensity has been consistently higher over the last 18 months or so. Are you seeing that still, or is is it leveled out with Democratic intensity?
2: So just overall, by way of intensity, when you look at it from a national perspective, Republicans are more fired up to support President Trump than Democrats are for Biden, or I should at least say those supporting Trump, taking partisanship out of it. That said, it turns in the other way around when you look at the numbers of people voting for Biden who want to vote for him to get the president out of office. There is an intensity gap between the two campaigns. More people who are voting for the president are doing it because they support him. And reverse is the other side of folks who simply want to get him out of office, a lot of them who are backing Biden. When we go to look at Texas specifically, what we saw in 2018 was nothing short of a 100-year flood. Turnout was off the charts. There was a huge gubernatorial race and bigger U.S. Senate race. Senator Cruz was up in 2018. And what we saw happen in the final weeks leading up to the election was just I would call it a turnout bomb in the suburbs, Houston, Dallas, Austin, numbers that were just off the charts of people participating in a way that, quite frankly, those of us who worked in predictive analytics didn't see coming. It happened so quickly and fast at the end. I think what we can expect across the map this year with the expansion of early voting and absentee, it's going to be very similar. And, you know, Like anything else it's tough to know will texas ever turn blue it's something we hear about and have been hearing about for years changing demographics just like everywhere else in the country Um, that said senator cornyn is up for re-election i've seen him far ahead in almost every public poll that's been out and believe that he's in good shape and will continue to be of course the president has to win there if they don't do well in texas then there's no no pathway to victory from the electoral college
1: and the, the big one, you know, I think was in all the papers last week. You know, whoever wins Florida, just like in 2000, wins the election. I know uh, Bloomberg just announced he was putting $100 million in down there. Biden just announced $65 million, and he was there last week. Uh, Trump is there consistently. I know you don't have a Senate race there, but are you seeing any early analytics, or do you think it really is going to come down to a toss-up that night?
2: What I've been reading a lot about and seeing in the numbers is there's this new conventional wisdom that the president's doing re- really well in South Florida, and there are two huge congressional evergreen toss-up districts down there. It's Florida 26, it's the Keys in Miami-Dade, Florida 27, Miami-Dade going north a little bit. There's just this belief that the president's doing better with the Cuban population in South Florida than he had been previously. It's starting to look a little bit different, however, in the suburbs. Moving up into Orlando, where the numbers apparently are not quite where they were four years ago. So I think at the end of the day, we all know that this is a must win for the president. It's where he calls home now. No mathematical pathway to victory if they don't make Florida happen. So it's an absolute must win state and a number of big congressional races there that are seeing a lot of money flowing in and out of, which could help the top of the ticket, but we'll see.
1: And of course, we're you know we're not going to waste time on Georgia so much today, but we we have seen some investment here from the presidential campaigns. But you're looking at quite frankly the two most expensive Senate seats um, in Georgia's history happening at the same time. I mean, do you still think this could come down to who controls the U.S. Senate could be the the two seats in Georgia? Is that is that a potential?
2: It sure could be, Chris, and then you will really be the center of the world. You already are for a lot of other reasons with the presidential race, two big Senate races and a number of House races. We know that if we could be looking at two runoffs in early January, if Senator Perdue doesn't cross the 50 percent threshold, it's expected that Senator Loeffler's seat is likely to go to a runoff in January. So for those of us who have had enough of politics by the presidential day, I would prepare for another couple of months to really see how this shakes out. Tough to know if the majority's in play at that point, but anything's a possibility.
1: Right. Uh, Any other prognostications you want to leave us as we wrap it up here today? Any states that we missed or any big pictures that you want to mention?
2: I just continue to caution everybody to look at the polling closely, not just make a decision what to do, whether to vote based on the national polls that we're seeing come out. We know that this comes down to an electoral college So pay attention to what's happening in the states. That's what really matters. There's about six or so. And then lastly, I would say, Chris, if I could plug, we have new website, voteforjobs.com. We've got a tool that the US chamber just rolled out late last week that tells you state by state all of the early voting and absentee and no excuse laws. So you can go and take a look just right into Georgia, when you can start to return your ballot, how you can vote, are you registered to vote? And we're keeping up with the rules as they're changing. And we saw yesterday just to leave it at this, some states are now going to start counting early votes and absentees until Election Day. So I'd be prepared for a long night, but make sure you're informed the best way how to participate.
1: Well, I appreciate that a lot because we've just signed on with an effort from the Secretary of State and with a business group here, a group of business leaders in Atlanta, to encourage businesses to, A, uh, let your workers off to work at the polls because we have a poll worker shortage, two, register people to vote, and three, let your employees off so they can go vote on on election day or go vote early. So um, we'll continue to push that message too. But actually, thank you for what you do. Thank you for the great partnership that we have with the U.S. Chamber and the hard work that you guys do every day. And we'll look forward to working with you and hearing from you as we move through the next couple of months here. Thanks so much.
2: Thank you, Chris.
1: Well, Ashley, thank you so much for what you do and the partnership that we have with the U.S. Chamber. Uh, Your information today was perfect, great, and it gives us a lot to focus on as we move through the next couple of months. I wanna shift our focus now from politics to policy by bringing on uh, U.S. Senator Kelly Loeffler uh, to talk a little bit more about the recovery, the pandemic, and what's happening in Washington. Please join me in welcoming Senator Kelly Loeffler. Uh, we're now going to shift our focus away from politics and talk more about policy. And I'm pleased to be joined now by uh, U.S. Senator Kelly Loeffler uh, to talk about the state of our national economy. Uh, Senator, thanks for being with us today. Uh, thank you for all that you're doing in Washington. Let's talk about economics. Let's talk about the recession and recovery now. Um, you know, as a, a, you're probably the top businesswoman on the Joint Economic Committee. And uh, on behalf mm-hmm. of all Georgians, we're glad that you're there. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about the work of that committee that you've, what you guys have been working on.
3: Well, that's right, Chris. And thanks so much for having me here. It's great to be with y'all. Uh, wish I could be with you in Georgia or, or you could be up here, but uh, appreciate you managing through this uh, unique time. You know, I'm very proud to serve as a member on the Joint Economic Committee. It's headed up by uh, Chairman Mike Lee. Uh, I'm really that voice for Georgians, that, that business woman uh, bringing my experience nearly three decades in the private sector to this committee as we evaluate and shape really economic policy and thinking through what recommendations might improve policy for all Georgians and, and all Americans. Uh, I'll give you one example that, that we looked at recently uh, during the pandemic. We realized how important our charitable organizations were in delivering um Relief in supporting our communities in so many different ways, whether it was uh, childcare, food insecurity, um, or, or even natural disasters that that we've we've seen during this uh, hurricane season, um, and and finding ways to support charitable giving. In fact, um, in the most recent round of relief that that we voted on in the Senate, uh, this this round of of targeted relief, it did include some charitable deduction benefit. Now, unfortunately, that piece of legislation did not pass, uh, But and and we can talk more about what it included and and maybe why it didn't pass, Um, but really keeping that focus on how do we keep the economy moving forward in all parts of the economy. There's a lot of focus on on jobs and and top-line numbers but really getting to the underlying support. And I've made it a huge priority as a business person to build relationships in Washington, uh, not only with my Senate colleagues, but as with members of the administration have gotten to know Secretary Mnuchin, Chairman Powell, uh, so that we, so that Georgians know that we have an outside seat at the table and uh, have been working really hard to make sure that Georgians' voices are heard. And... Um, and, you know, that's in areas that, that you've advocated for uh, liability limitations around COVID, uh, businesses, uh, churches, schools, opening, and and not being subject to, um, you know, litigation due to COVID. So those are just a couple of examples that the committee is focused on.
1: So I'm, I'm curious, obviously, you're bringing to D.C. a very different mindset than than many of your colleagues, so you really understand the economy, I think, probably better than than most of your peers out there, we're now hearing from economists that we might be looking at a, you know, we all wanted a V-shaped recession, right? We're not going to get that. It's either going to be K or it's going to be a Nike swoosh or, you know, whatever. It's going to take longer for certain areas, particularly for our rural communities. So I'm curious, as you work on that committee and in your other work, what concerns you most right now about the economy? What's kind of the, you know, the thing keeping you up at night?
3: Well, it's really important uh, to focus on jobs, and, and that's jobs at every level of the economy. And and that was why we were so hopeful that we would be able to advance this latest, latest round of targeted relief for COVID. Now, we're talking about uh, the top line of the bill was about $500 billion, But when you look at the offsets that would have come from unspent funds in the CARES Act, you know we we could have had something around 300 billion it would have supported ppp uh ppp was instrumental in saving millions of jobs across the country maybe as many as 50 million um you know half a trillion dollars went into that program helped businesses uh small businesses in particular uh, but sadly, uh, we're looking at maybe 100,000 small businesses that will close permanently. And small businesses are the net incremental addition of jobs in this country. And that's why it's so important that we support them. Um, when we look at the economic uh, data, however, we do see employment coming back. So there is that dynamic of a quick bounce back. So a V-type bounce back, that may soften to a U as as we get deeper into the fall, and and we look at some of the challenges on building on that momentum. Uh, We saw retail sales this morning come out. Uh, Retail sales were up. We saw um, factory output uh, data come out recently that was up, Uh, that factory. Those numbers are up, maybe not with the resilience that they were in June and July. Uh, but this recovery is happening. And so we're going to continue to monitor all segments of the economy. And, and you're right, as the hundredth senator, I was just working in business a year ago. Um, I really do feel it is my obligation to keep my ear to the ground and be that advocate. Because in Washington, I call business, I call them employers. I I never want Washington to forget that it is our businesses who create jobs and opportunity who provide benefits for 160 million Americans across this country.
1: So, Senator, following back up, you mentioned the bill that the the Republican senators introduced. It didn't pass. You know, our latest data here in Georgia, we're looking at about 24 percent of Georgia businesses haven't reopened yet. And as you know, the longer that goes on, the less likely they are to reopen. The market's going to shift and change. And so, you know, I think we saw news uh, recently that, that some in Washington are saying we might not even have another round until after the election in November. What's really the, the prospectus up there from, your, from where you're sitting today about passing some additional support?
3: Yeah, it's um, you know it's really important that we we balance out the the needs to be fiscally responsible um, because we have heard so much feedback uh, about the impact of of high unemployment payments that that withheld the ability of of employees to get back into the job market. So we have to balance that concern with industries that have been hurt through no fault of their own. And in Georgia, we know. Tourism, hospitality, um, entertainment—so many of these great businesses are, are hurt. Uh, I've had 20 Delta flights since May 4th. Um, it's just heartbreaking when you get on the plane and it's a, a third full. Maybe it's a half full these days, which is great to see. The Atlanta airport is is open, um, but uh, we need that. We need more of that. Now, the nice contrast is when I come up to Washington. This economy up here has never reopened. So we're very blessed that our governor has recognized the importance to protect livelihoods and lives together and rebuild our economy in Georgia. But you know, we also need to reopen schools. That's what this bill would have done. It would have given funding about 105 billion to help us reopen schools for kids. They need—they learn best in school. They need to be back in school safely. I've advocated for $15 billion for childcare. This is another big need for parents. Not everyone has the luxury to work from home. Uh, and then additional uh, relief for liability protections, uh, among other things, to help businesses reopen safely and to keep that vaccine and testing regime going forward. It's become a political issue. Uh looks like the Democrats want to keep the issue and not solve the problem, and, and that's where we are today.
1: So to... Um I think some of the things you just mentioned, like the child care component, we hear about that consistently from working families in Georgia. Talk a little bit about where you are with the RISE Act. You know, we, we supported that when you dropped it. I guess it might have been in April or May uh, that you dropped that. I'm curious, I know how hard it is to move legislation through in Washington, we all do, but a lot of times pieces of those bills will end up in other, other bills. So tell us a little bit about where you are with the Act.
3: Well, you're exactly right, Chris. And, um, you know, the Rise USA plan was really an outgrowth of me being appointed to the president's opening up America Again uh, Congressional Working Group. Uh, I saw it as my duty as a business person to come up with a plan to look two moves down the game board and say, "Okay, we're fighting this pandemic, but we've got to stand the economy back up. So this plan was based around made in the USA, grown in the USA. So recognizing that Georgia's number one industry is agriculture. Third one is hiring in the USA, making sure that we remove all barriers to getting back to full employment. And then families in the USA. And um, made in the USA, that particular pillar around that, a, a key principle that I've advanced under legislation was the Beat China Act. Now, look, You know, we have a huge opportunity in Georgia as demonstrated by things like Kia that brought thousands of uh, manufacturing, automotive manufacturing jobs to Georgia. We can do that if we continue to move our supply chains back to Georgia, back to America, create jobs, reduce supply chain dependency, particularly for medicine, for medical supplies. Um, So I'm really excited about that because I think, you know, that's something where we can offer incentives, not mandates. I'm a business person. Uh, we respond well to incentives, not mandates, and um, create that that engine of, of economic opportunity. And we see what it means to our local communities too when a manufacturer comes in. And it's rural communities too. It's not the metro areas alone. This is rural communities that can be lifted up. So uh, I continue to push that. In fact Ted Cruz uh, included my Beat China Act in, in his uh, plan to reopen the economy as well. So uh, we continue to push forward with uh, several pieces of that legislation.
1: Yeah, I think one of the things that's most that stands out to me the most is how reliant we've been on pharmaceutical manufacturing in China. Are you finding that those pharmaceutical companies, we're going to have some of them on, Pharma's one of our sponsors later this week, um, have you found that they're open to this idea of reshoring and bringing that production back to, to America?
3: Absolutely. Look, this is these will be business decisions. And if we have the right incentives, I mean, look, in 2017, when President Trump implemented the tax reform bill, you saw all kinds of businesses coming back to America. The talk about inversions, you might remember pharmaceutical companies doing inversions to get outside of the United States and get their tax base in Ireland or other low tax venues. Uh, Trillions of dollars came pouring back into America as a a result of that. In fact, that was part of my Rise USA plan was to make permanent those tax cuts. Um, Now you see Democrats promising $4 trillion in tax increases, corporate taxes going up dramatically. That will not incentivize any manufacturing to come back. And I I see a a great deal of interest in in building those jobs, uh, the supply chain, the quality control, all of that onshore here.
1: So one of the things, uh, we're also bringing in PPE from a lot from China, and we've had many Georgian manufacturers kind of retooled in March, April, and May so they could produce the face mask and face shields. A lot of them right now are worried that if they continue down that path, the demand will go away. and So they're looking for something from Washington to say, no, continue down this path of manufacturing these products here. Any insight or advice for those manufacturers in Georgia that are they're that having to make that decision right now?
3: Well, first of all, thank you to those manufacturers. And I, I've met with so many who really shifted their business rapidly amid a very challenging time. I mean, uh, having to manage a workforce uh, during a time of keeping them safe and also shifting supply chains. Um, look, I think, you know, what works best is when we have – an open, competitive, free market, and that the United States is really at the center of that. So making sure that we're driving our supply chains locally, that we're using uh, the best of of technology to to make sure that distribution mechanism gets out to people who need it, who might not know about the capabilities we have here, and really making that public-private partnership work, because I think Georgia's great at it. I think it's one of the reasons uh, Georgia is consecutively, seven years, the best place in the country to do business uh, because we facilitate those strong public-private partnerships uh, across industry, across academia, our military, uh, and our great employers.
1: So you, you've been one of those great employers in Georgia, so I'm curious. We, you know, we're, we're blessed to have a lot of Fortune 500 companies here, a lot of headquarters here. A lot of those companies, I talk to their executives all the time and they're trying to determine when to bring employees back, how to balance things out. But they really are looking at what does the, the foreseeable future look like for their investment? What advice would you give to those, those headquartered companies, those Fortune 500 companies right now?
3: Well, uh, I attribute so much of our of our own ability to grow business to being in Georgia. I mean, we're talking low-tax environment, um, reduced regulatory complexity, uh, tremendous infrastructure, best airport in the world, um, the the educational system that creates uh, a strong pipeline of skilled and, and great employees. So there's so much potential in Georgia and, and really one of the most um, broad range of industries. I mean, we're becoming a, a tech capital, uh, manufacturing. Uh, we've got military. In fact, I was just out in Augusta, uh, Fort Gordon, you know, you've got this strong cyber uh, center, you've got uh, both from a military and private sector perspective. So there's, there's very much a can-do attitude here um, and, and those partnerships uh, are growing. And, and I just think that um, we have tremendous potential because of that. So I've been uh, very uh, vocal about the fact that our success uh, was, was driven largely in part to
1: being in Georgia. And we're glad, and we're glad that you're here too. Um, I want to shift focus a little bit. I remember when Senator Purdue first got elected six years ago, and I, I was having a conversation with him after probably eight or nine months in office, and I asked him what you know struck him the most about Washington, and he said just the partisanship. And so I'm curious now. I mean, you've been there a few months. We know that when Republicans and Democrats work together, we pass a Cares Act, we pass a USMCA we work hard here and i think in georgia one of the things we've benefited from is a sense of bipartisanship on economic issues particularly with republicans and democrats what's your perspective right now on the on the on the hyperpartisanship that we're seeing you know is it just because it's an election year is it just intrinsic i mean how do you move beyond that and work with your peers across the aisle to get get things passed
3: it's a really important question and i do think the fact that it's an election year, that we're in the middle of an election season, and yet we're trying to solve really, really big problems. It's a big challenge. I mean, you saw at the end of June, you know, we tried to pass the Justice Act uh, for debate on the floor. Uh, couldn't get a vote to, to move that forward. I mean, one of the other big issues in, in terms of having a strong economy is safety and security. Uh, that's an issue I've been hearing about since I've gone around Georgia people want to be safe in their communities and make sure that that we have the resources there. Yet that was blocked from even coming into debate, just as the next round of stimulus for coronavirus was. It shows that, you know, there's a desire to run on these issues, not being part of the solution. And who pays the price is the American people, uh, which doesn't matter which party you belong to. It's uh, it impacts everyone. So it, it is frustrating, but there is uh, there are ways to solve problems. I've been encouraged by that. I've been encouraged by the ability that if you roll up your sleeves and get to work, you can be part of the solution. Uh, that's why I've gotten to know so much of the administration to work hand in hand with them to make sure I'm moving uh, forward what we can do um, and have introduced about 50 pieces of legislation Uh, whether it's related to healthcare. um, I did have three pieces of legislation included in the CARES Act myself. They all related to healthcare, rural health, telehealth, uh, and PPE. Uh, But then I got to work on the business side. Uh, More recently, I've been focused on law and order. So there are ways to get the message out, to start to put the building blocks together uh, for that moment when we can come together to solve problems. So um i think you know there's always going to be room for it but these last uh few weeks before the election it it'll be challenging
1: i'm curious the, the us chamber we we've had a lot of discussions there about um you know thanking and reaching out to senators and, and house members that sign each other's bills right so to so really put their name on the line for bipartisanship i'm curious any of the bills that, that you've worked on on either side have, have you had democrat sponsors or has there been a democrat out there that you said hey we, i've really enjoyed working with you i mean um you know we've heard that from other uh senator purdue talks about a lot of the different democratic senators he loves to work with and house members what about from your perspective
3: well, definitely. And for our state, you know, veterans, we're the fifth largest state for veterans. Uh, I recently fought for um, some, some provisions in uh, a mental health bill that we passed, um, have worked with uh, Senator Cinema from Arizona on that, um, on the Ag Committee, have worked on a bipartisan basis there. Uh, and so I think when it comes to making sure that we're delivering for Georgians uh, and particularly where it it can make the biggest impact. Uh, I haven't hesitated to do that. I think where, um, what I've been surprised to see is, is kind of the reluctance on the other side of the aisle to, to bring us in particularly where we've had, uh, in some of the economic issues, uh, that, that they want to, you know, make them more partisan. So, um, Look, I think in the committees, that's where some of the best work can get done. And obviously on the health, education, labor and pension committee that I'm on, um, health care is is another one where um, certainly during the pandemic, we've been able to get a lot done there. So, look, you know, in my first nine months here in the Senate, it's it's good to see that there are ways to go about this and to continue to look look for ways to get work done.
1: Well, and I think, too, to your point, um, you a lot of that work goes on, but it's not reported in the media. You know, we don't see the bipartisanship piece. We see the dividing pieces of it. So kudos to continue to try to work with the senator from Arizona and others out there on these big issues. Um, I know you're extremely busy today. Any last messages for our members uh, before we let you get back to the floor and back to work?
3: Well, thank you for making time. I'm excited for us to be together again in person. Um, I wanna thank you all for what you do, your leaders um, in in our community and and so important. I always say all the good work happens at home on the ground. So uh, please know that my office is here to help you. If we can do anything to help with PPP, anything else that you might be uh, in need of, uh, we're here, uh, leffler.senate.gov. And I just want to thank you all and um, uh, know that we're up here working uh, to, to bring home every opportunity and advantage for Georgia.
1: Well, we appreciate that. And we appreciate your staff. You know, Joan and Sydney and everybody, they're just fantastic team. And we enjoy working with them every day. And Senator, thank you for your time. We appreciate uh, all your advocacy for business in Washington. Um, and now we're actually going to switch segments. We're going to dig in a little bit deeper into our nation's financial state with our Treasury uh, and what to expect as we kind of come out of this in 2021. Uh, our next panel today is going to focus on that, the global health recession. Um, and we're going to hear from Congressman Barry Louderman. Congressman David Scott, and hosting them is our friend Kevin Blair, President and COO of Synovus. So thanks so much for being with us. Kevin, I'll turn it over to you. Please welcome the President
0: and Chief Operating Officer of Synovus, Kevin Blair. Joining Kevin is U.S. Congressman Barry Loudermilk and David Scott.
4: I want to thank uh, Chris Clark and the Georgia Chamber for facilitating today's conversation. And most importantly, I want to thank Congressman Scott and Loudermilk for joining us for today's virtual D.C. fly-in. I know many watching the video today, including myself, wish we could be with you in D.C., but despite being remote, I'm honored to be part of this conversation uh, with our representatives. I'm especially excited to discuss your support of the businesses in the state of Georgia and, more specifically, your work on the U.S. House Committee on Financial Services. So, Congressman, thank you for making time for our discussion today and for both of you having a stellar track record supporting the businesses of Georgia. And I believe it has a direct correlation back to your own time as business owners. So let's start on the legislative front and we'll start with Congressman Loudermilk. Uh, Your work on the House Financial Services Committee has given you a front row seat to negotiations on the COVID-19 relief legislation. Can you let us know what we should expect in the next round of relief legislation, if there is going to be?
5: Well, that's the big question, if there's going to be. Um, You know, our, our position on the Republican side has been to not rush into something and just, you know, throw money at something that may or may not be needed. I mean, there's still some funds that have not been allocated from the first CARES Act. But to wait and actually see what the specific need is and where we've been successful in CARES. The PPP program was phenomenally successful across the board. And I I especially credit some of our uh, businesses, even uh, in in Georgia. I talked to a business yesterday who uh, received a couple million dollars out of PPP. Once they got it, they realized they really didn't need it because they were going to be able to continue to operate their business. So they gave it back so it would be available to more businesses. But I think we need to do some revision on PPP, reopen that to go to those most vulnerable businesses that we have out there. But I think the biggest thing that we're going to have to address is the enhanced unemployment or the the federal subsidy going into uh, the unemployment insurance. The problem that we have right now is in the state of Georgia, I think it's just because the Department of Labor is overwhelmed with the applications. They're not really screening. I talked to a business owner recently who uh, had a an employee um, steal uh, someone's mail and packages off the front porch while they were uh, actually employed and they were fired because they committed a federal crime. But yet they received the full unemployment with the subsidy. And so we're not policing it very well. And the bigger bigger problem that we're hearing from businesses all over is they're just uh, employees are making more money being on unemployment than they are At their full time jobs in Georgia. So I think we need to reformulate the uh, the enhanced unemployment to where it is more relative to the 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 geographic or demographic area and the cost of living. Because, you know, uh, what we're doing right now, the four hundred dollars, it was six hundred dollars is not that much in New York City, but it's a significant amount in Georgia. And so that is the, the number one issue that businesses are coming to me about is we need we, we could drop our unemployment rate significantly if we just didn't pay people uh, to stay at home. I'm even getting this uh, from some of our county commissioners that are having a hard time getting county employees uh, back on the job. And finally, we've got to include some type of liability protection for those businesses uh, that that reopen. Uh, you know, some some protection from just frivolous lawsuits. So if we're able to get to something, those are the top three priorities, I think, that we're going to have to have in there.
4: That, that's very helpful. Representative Scott, I know this is a meaty topic, so I'll ask your thoughts on it, and then ultimately maybe dovetail a second question that talks about not only the short-term relief, but what's the long-term planning that Congress should be considering as a result of this?
6: Well, <laughs> first of all, let me thank the, the Georgia Chamber of Commerce for putting this on. This is very timely. And it's very important. It's good to be on with my good friend, Barry Latter-Milk, uh, who's doing a fantastic job up here on the Financial Services Committee along with me. First of all, what we've got to do of immediacy is get relief down to the states. Secondly, we have to iron out the wrinkles that are in there because there is a problem with the states then getting the share of the money that we've already sent down out to the cities and the local governments. So we've got to do that. And I might add that, uh, my friend, uh, Speaker David Ralston, and I say my friend, <clears throat> he and I served together uh, during my days in the uh, Georgia legislature when I was state senator, chairman of the Rules Committee, and worked with uh, David. He's a good man. He sent us a letter uh, at the end of August, and in that letter that he sent to Congress he really expressed the need to get immediate and flexibility as a major criterion of the money to the states. He specifically asked, uh, and David, uh, being, uh, as I said, a Republican and a conservative Republican, asked for an, an additional 500 billion dollars to get down to the states. Very important, because it's very important to show that there is um, bipartisan concern about the immediacy of taking care of our people. It is the governors. It is the state legislatures that need and will appropriate uh, these funds, and um, the other thing we've got to do also is try to figure out and come to some understanding about the extended uh, payment for um, unemployment. And uh, right now, I think we're going to move on that to get some more stimulus checks out. It won't quite be for six hundred. Maybe we can compromise, Democrats and Republicans come up with 500, 450, whatever it takes. But the point I'm getting at is that we've got to iron out the monies that we've already got there. Let me give you an example. We have um, uh, now only given down the states, have only in my area and in Georgia. Of the money that's allocated in this last tranche that went down, only 30% of the money that we put in there to get down to the cities, the counties, and the local governments have been extended, have been allocated, let alone used. Now, that means 70% of that money is still on the table down there in Georgia not going out to our cities and our counties who desperately need that. And here's the other wrinkle. By law, they've got to allocate that money and spend what they already have by the end of December. 70% of it is there. So we've got to really address those. And I think that... Both Democrats and Republicans up here, as I said, understand this and are moving very strongly uh, in this direction. You went on to ask me about what we need to do on long term and what we need to do now to strengthen our economy. We have got to make moves to get our manufacturing back into our country. We've lost so much manufacturing out all over the world that uh, we're losing that. And particularly, let me tell you, the one good thing, not a good thing, but one thing about this pandemic is it exposed a very serious weakness in the future of our country, that in that manufacturing need to get back our medicines, our vital instruments to take care of our people have been uh, positioned out into foreign, foreign governments to handle. China, uh, Korea, uh, all these different places. We need to get back and make sure that we can put policies in that will get manufacturing back. And finally, not only manufacturing, but our agriculture agriculture is our single most important industry. It is the food we eat. It is the water we drink. It is our clothing. It is our shelter. You can't get more important than that. And we are not treating our farmers with the kind of financial help and respect that is needed. And so We're advocating up here, and I am. We're putting in some things in that will help us to do this. Namely, one thing, and I'll end on this. We have got to move to get our flood insurance in place. We need to get a 10-year extension on our flood insurance. The reason I'm bringing that up, why we need to do that and get on it, that will expire as well at the end of September, two weeks from now, no flood insurance. And we got hurricanes after hurricanes lined up coming off of Africa like the, the uh, a batting lineup for the Atlanta Braves. So we got some serious issues here. And um, uh, Barry and I are right there working with them together to make it happen.
4: Well, Representative Scott, as a banker, I couldn't agree with you more. I think that the more we insource business into this great state of Georgia, whether it's manufacturing or keeping our agricultural businesses, but also having that flood insurance, which will keep property values at a higher level, we, we need to make sure that we have that. So agree with you. Uh, Representative Loudermilk, you know, from your perspective, any other things long-term that um, – pique your interest in terms of what we need to be focused on and then two um with representative scott talking about flexibility for the states i know governor kemp has also uh, been very uh, vocal about making sure that the states have flexibility on spending what what's your take on that
5: well first on what we need to do uh, going forward in long term i agree with uh, my good friend, David, that uh, manufacturing is important. and But what we need to do is continue the same policies that we've had implemented over the past three and a half years to where we are seeing uh, manufacturing move back into the United States. With the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, uh, we started seeing more interest in American manufacturing. Um, we've seen it that continue on. Um, and quite frankly, I think we're seeing uh, more growth in the state of Georgia you know, the the uh, revenue reports just came out last Thursday and surprised a lot of people, especially a lot of people here in Washington, D.C., that Georgia's tax revenues are ahead of what they were in 2019 at this point. That was because of good uh, conservative pro-business, pro-individual policies that uh, uh, Governor Kemp put in during a very, very difficult time. And I think of one of the primary differences is, you know, who do we trust most uh, to bring our economy back to that point that it was and even beyond, is it the government that we trust the most or do we trust the individual to make the right decisions for themselves? And so I think uh, we've shown here in Georgia, trust the individuals, trust the businesses. Businesses don't want their employees to be sick. Individuals don't want to be sick. Um, And we can give them guidelines to make those right choices. Um, One thing that we're going to have to deal with, and this is something that I have been uh, relentless on since even before I was in Congress, but we have just increased our deficit and debt to astronomical amounts. The highest amount of debt we've had since World War II when you look at our uh, gross GDP. This has to be a priority to address going forward because this isn't the last emergency that we're going to face in this nation. We're going to continue to face things uh, from uh, national emergencies, uh, natural disasters, um, security uh, issues, and, uh, you know, even threats to our national security from foreign actors. We have to be able to have the funds at times in our nation to temporarily go into debt. We've done that since the beginning of our nation. Even during our own uh, war for independence, we went into debt, but we've always continuously paid those off. That has not happened in the past couple of decades. We, we need to be looking at uh, balancing our budget. That's one of the reasons the state of Georgia is doing so well economically right now as compared to other states. We have a balanced budget amendment and we've been fiscally responsible. The other thing is we have to learn how to live with COVID. There's a lot of interest and a lot of excitement about the potential for a vaccine. I think the therapeutics and um, the ability to treat this virus is as important, if not more important, than actually a vaccine. The American people are willing to take a, an element of risk if they know that there is the medical treatment that's available for them. I don't know that we're going to eradicate it anytime soon. We've eradicated uh, you know, illnesses and diseases and epidemics in the past. We've done it with polio, we did it with smallpox, but it takes a while to do that. In the meantime, we have to have a way of treating it. Our medical professionals have done a phenomenal job, and our response to COVID has been so successful, not because of the federal government's direct engagement, but the federal government allowing local governments to move forward and to make those critical decisions. Um, But we have to learn, uh, lessons learned from the CARES Act, what worked, what didn't work, so we can have those things in play uh, in the future. But one of the other things I think we need to do on a permanent basis, something I've been working on, is we suspended a lot of regulations in the financial services sector to make sure that we were able to get businesses uh, and allow banks to actually provide uh, the, the funding that these businesses need. And we've suspended regulations in financial services. We suspended regulations in the Health and Human Services. We've done a lot to actually move us forward through Operation Warp Speed to get this, uh, uh, this vaccine moving in the, as quickly as we have. What we need to look at is now question very seriously how do we really need those regulations to start with? Are they just obstacles to a strong economy and a vibrant uh, nation? And we should look at each one of those and look at making those uh, temporary uh, suspensions permanent. And so I think that's something else that, uh, that we need to do. And as, and, and as far as the state funding, we do need to be more flexible in allowing the states to use that money where they see that they, they need it the most, but yet still targeted toward the the epidemic and the economic relief. I think it's wholly unfair to ask Georgians who have, uh, through good policy, through being able to get back to work and their willingness to create a strong economy in Georgia again, I think it's wholly unfair to ask them to bail out another state or another city who has not been fiscally responsible even before the pandemic, to ask us to bail them out because inevitably every tax dollar that's spent is money out of the pockets of individual Americans. So it must be flexible, but it must be targeted to COVID, COVID relief, and economic restoration.
4: That's very clear. I appreciate that. Um, You know, the CARES Act, uh, you you talked about, it it does create a bit of a deficit from a budget standpoint, but it was unprecedented policy. I think when you look at it and people lose sight of $2 trillion dollars, that, that in fact represents about 10% of our GDP and 50% of our M1 money supply. So it was substantial. And I think obviously we, we know the country needed it. And and Representative Scott, I appreciate your thoughts on making sure it gets spent. But as a banker, you know, I found it particularly relevant that Congress engaged existing bank infrastructure to provide this large-scale, fast-moving relief program. How can our banks continue to support the recovery? through this federal program and what else can we do to help to stimulate the economy
6: well one of the things that our bank banking folks can do is keep doing the job that you're doing as i often tell people the banking system is the heart of our financial system it is where it pumps the money out to all the streams that are there and so we need to Definitely uh, continue to support and use our PPP funds to help employers to be able to keep people working. We've also got to streamline how we're able to uh, uh, get uh, money out into various areas of the community that need it. We have Several areas in which we are now working to help to ease the strain. Now, let me give you an example. President Trump has uh, said there is a moratorium on evictions. Wonderful. Um, we are putting together money to help the renters because. If we do not and are unable to get money through the system continuously on into the banks, the banks are not going to stay in business. Those people are lending to people who own the properties that the renters are renting. So we need to take the president up on this, okay? He said, "Moratorium on evictions, wonderful. But who and how are we going to pay for these ev- evictions? How are is the bank? How are our banks, our companies, our lenders? How are they going to get paid? What about the landlords? How are they going to get it? So we've got to come to bat very quickly." Because in Georgia, we are having an astounding number of people on eviction lists. So, all I'm saying is, let's go ahead on. And uh, while the president is out there with this eviction moratorium, we can come now as members of Congress and put the effective amount of money that's going to make sure that while we're helping these renters stay in their homes, especially during this crisis where we're telling them, stay in your homes, we have money in the pipeline, in the CARES Act, in the HEROES Act, that will help facilitate this. So I think, uh, and uh, I'm anxious, I happen to pass... uh, Senator McConnell in the hall and uh, had a chance to say, hey, uh, the president has uh, put these eviction moratoriums on, but we got to get that money that's in there to get it to the banks. The banks are the ones that are lending this money. All of these companies are doing that. So that is uh, one area that we... uh, Can deal with, and to make things even more simple and uh, understandable. That the and the other thing is, we've got the Fed now. Talked to Paul about this. Everybody is interested now. We've had several meetings of what they can do. What can the Fed do to help in this area to facilitate? Uh, getting the money out through the system, treasury. And so if we get everybody working together, one accord, we got to remember that we got to keep our economy thriving. We got to make sure that for every action, there's a reaction. And we've got to make sure that the money is channeled. And we got to further understand that the banking system is the heart of it. And if we're not getting money through them to help get out. And the other thing is the bankers, particularly our smaller community bankers, they're the lifeblood of our communities. It's not the J.P. Morgan's. I love J.P. Morgan and Bank of America and all of those. But it's those banks in Cobb County and Douglas County, those community banks, that are out there dealing with, and some of them are working on the margin. One other thing, we've got money there sitting now in the Senate for the utilities, payments. People are in the process of getting their utilities cut off. We got money there that will go to that $75 billion. We got the money there to help the renters we put in a hundred million a hundred billion for that for the renters so once we say we're going to do something, we cannot lose the fact that the banks have to be vibrant they're the ones that get the money out into the economic mainstream and we're not Putting enough emphasis on our banking system, particularly at the community and small banking uh, situation, and uh, so that's what uh, uh, we we are stressing here. And there's several other things, but I'll stop right there, put a little bow on it, and uh, let uh, my good friend Barry pick up from there.
4: Well, yeah, that's true. Words never said. I think these. The financial institutions have been paramount in providing the relief, but also continue to provide capital. I think for Representative Ottermilk, anything you would add, but then we also have talked a lot about the the Paycheck Protection Program, which I can tell you from my perspective was very successful in keeping businesses open. We've also been given the Main Street Lending Program, which provides us another vehicle to provide needed capital to help to weather this short-term cash flow storm that many of our businesses are seeing. Um, From your perspective, do you see any change in the forgiveness process around the Paycheck Protection Program, or do you think we'll continue on with the existing process as it's been defined?
5: Well, I I think we need to change it, you know, as a former business owner. And, uh, you know, we have a businessman in the White House as well. The success, as you're right, the PPP was very successful. is because we engaged with the private sector. And, And David mentioned this, and a lot of people don't realize it. The money that was loaned to these businesses were assets of the individual banks. It was not government money. The only time these banks are going to get any federal funds is when that loan is forgiven, either turned into a grant Or if someone defaults on it, then the government's going to make good on it. So there's some things that we need to do. You always in business, you replicate your successes and you learn from your failures. That's not the case in government most of the time. I get set on a way of doing things and whether it was successful or not, we just keep doing things the same way. Uh, PPP was successful because we took it out of just a government bureaucracy and we returned to an era to where the government and private industry worked in partnership together. So we do have to streamline the, uh, the forgiveness process because we are tying up assets of these banks, especially the small banks, that they could be using to make more business loans even outside the PPP program. So there are efforts to make this happen. We've been working on uh, legislation and, and uh, uh, trying to uh, it, encourage uh, the government to make a streamlined single page uh, forgiveness program. and The banks really need that. There's something else that we're working on is we actually have to look at the, the uh, asset threshold of these small banks. We have a bank in the 11th congressional district that I work very closely with on PPP. They gave us a lot of good feedback on how to roll this out. As a result and their engagement, they actually issued more PPP loans than one of the largest banks in the nation did nationwide. And this is a small bank uh, in, in the Vinings area that just has two branches. And it's because of their engagement in the community. Now, they don't have the assets of a Wells Fargo or Bank of America. And so the more, even though they have this number of PPP loans, their asset ratio, even though it was temporarily suspended or temporarily reduced, they still have to look at the number of loans they have versus the amount of assets that, that are on their books currently. I'd like us to, to uh, and we're working on legislation that hopefully that will reduce uh, that asset ratio with the PPP loans, and so um, I think there's a lot that we can do to make it permanent. There's something else that um, David said that I agree with. Um, I, philosophically, I have an issue of the government in you know getting involved between private contracts between renters and their landlords, is saying that you you don't have to pay um, your rent. And in some cases we need to give assistance. Some cases I've talked to landlords to where, you know, um, it, it appears that people just aren't paying the rent because they don't have to, but that's going to come due at some point. But if we are going to do this, um, and, uh, you know, and I don't disagree that there was probably a need to actually suspend, uh, or, or suspend evictions. Um, I don't know that just throwing new money at that problem is the solution since we have facilities already existing that we need to open up. There's still a lot of assets in the Main Street Lending Program that's not being utilized because it is just so narrowly focused. So there are a lot of other things that we can give some liquidity to. We can provide assets by opening up Main Street Lending instead of just appropriating another trillion dollars or, you know, You know, there's an old saying up here, a billion here and a billion there. Sooner or later, it adds up to real money. Well, now it's a trillion here and a trillion there. You know, we've already added so much to our debt. We need to look at at in a business perspective like we did with PPP. What can we do with what we have? And we have Main Street Lending. There's a lot of assets that are available there. I think we need to open that up. Uh, for uh, rent relief. We need to open that up for a lot of businesses that are providing assets to lower income people that they're not able to back uh, their loans with main street lending right now. And uh, also with the hospitality industry, we need to open that up to actually provide some support to our hotelers that are really struggling at this point. They're eventually going to come back, but we need to make sure they have assets And this is, you know, loans that they can borrow money to make sure that they're going to be around later in 2021 when business travel and more leisure travel picks up. So instead of just, and that's one thing I think that's going to be a a tug of war between Republicans and Democrats going forward on the next relief package is, you know, my standpoint, many of my colleagues are, instead of just throwing more money at a problem, let's look at the money that we've already allocated and use it more wisely.
4: Yeah, well said. And I think we all would agree with that. So I know your time is very valuable and it's limited. So I thought I would just do one more question. I'd ask both of you guys the same question and maybe bring it back home to Georgia. What have you heard from your constituents at home? And what, how are they faring during this time? And are there any local trends that you're seeing that may need con- congressional attention? So I'll start with you, Representative Scott.
6: Well, here at home, what is, what is foremost important right now is to get our people tested. That is the major item that we have to do. I am working on that around the clock. I have uh, already, with uh, the help of uh, uh, my local physicians and hospitals, we have been able to put drive through COVID-19 testing, and then addressing the hunger. uh, I just found out from the Atlanta Community Food Bank where we've got over 300,000, excuse me, nearly 300,000 of our children who are are ending the, the, the day in hunger at some level. Uh, and so we're giving away free food there. And so what that has done, it has really put me in direct touch and communications with people. And a lot of people are very, very frustrated. Uh A lot are uncertain. And uh I think that the more we can get out in front of this and give some certainty, give some confidence to our people, that we're on top of things. And we have to be careful about mixed information. There's no question with the fact that social distancing, wearing the mask, are very, very important. But at the same time, we have to be very much aware of the particular situations facing people, depending upon where they are. If you're living in certain parts of the town or certain parts of Georgia, you're going to be more susceptible. And so we have to put and target our efforts to try to meet those community needs in a um, in an automatic uh, <clears throat> way. There is one other thing that I would like to mention, because I think that uh, with the Georgia uh, Chamber of Commerce, needs to also be aware of the things that our business community uh, needs to be in the same line with what is happening in many of our local communities. They're very different on a racial basis, on an income basis, and we must be sensitive to that. Let me let me just tell you, give you this final example, what happened to me on a local basis here. I'm going through the airport, and one of my constituents says to me, <coughs> Congressman Scott, Congressman Scott. And I say, yes, can I talk to you? And he said, yes. And I said to him, and he said to me, he said, you know, you're putting these COVID testing things going on all over the community and I don't know if I'm gonna take that test. And I set me back. And I said, Why? Why would you not want to take the test? And he looked at me and he said, You know, they may find out that I got COVID 19. Then what I'm gonna do? And right then I knew. Here's the Lord sending me a message. This is a problem. There is a problem why we have so many deaths in the African-American community and low-income communities. Because this person, so many of our people, they don't have health insurance. They don't even have a relationship with a doctor. So there is a very serious fear here. And so... I'm just saying the immediate need is to get comfort level out there and to do this. Mm -hmm. Let me say why that's important. The president has announced we're getting information here in Congress that our pharmaceutical companies are rapidly moving. And it could be that we could get a vaccine very shortly. And so... That's why we need to get people tested to know who has it, because we can get the vaccine to them uh, on a quicker basis. And finally, I want to make this point, because uh, when uh, Barry was talking there about the banking and so forth and how we need to work, listen to this. I'm talking to the airlines uh, uh, pilots the other day, and they informed me. And I didn't know it, but their employee support program will be expiring at the end of September. We need to get busy and make sure that doesn't happen. Because how, if we have don't have the employee support mechanism in place to keep our airline workers at the airport working in airports across the country... How in the world are we going to be able to get this vaccine out to the people if our airlines are done? Thank you so much. I didn't mean to take too long on that. Barry, it's all yours.
4: Well, Congressman Scott, I just want to, before I turn it over to Congressman Loudermilk, we appreciate your focus on testing. It does make a big difference. We'll make sure we get this September 9th date out to all of our Atlanta community folks and so that they're fully aware of that event and appreciate you leading that. Um, so, Congressman Loudermilk, from your perspective, what, what are you hearing locally and, and um, what, what are your thoughts on, on how we can affect those local markets and constituents that you serve?
5: Well, you know, what I'm hearing locally, uh, different things from different areas. And we've talked a lot about what I'm hearing from the business community um, on what they need, um, hearing things from uh, the individuals but the one common thing is, can you just let me get my life back? All I want to do is get my life back. And the other thing that I'm hearing is I'm really tired of being made feel guilty because of who I am, whether it's I'm made, being made feel guilty that I'm an American, that America is bad. And one of the things that has really been frustrating to me and a lot of people that I've talked to is when the mainstream media And, you know, some politicians, none that are on this today, but there's some here in Washington, D.C., are taking advantage of of a crisis for political reasons, um, condemns America's response to COVID, is that it was wrong. When in reality, the way our response was done at the federal level was to engage the local communities. And it's our local communities that made the response to COVID so much better than any other nation that responded. I was with the, the Cobb County Chamber of Commerce at Dobbins Air Force Base when we had the cruise ship folks that were quarantined there, and they weren't getting all of the, the uh, essential things that they needed. The community stepped up and provided it. I've been at the hospitals with the health healthcare workers and nurses who didn't run away from this dangerous virus. They ran toward it. They put their own lives at risk. And it was because of their interaction with uh, patients who were very sick that we learned what treatments could actually reduce the uh, the effects of, of COVID. It wasn't necessarily tests being done at the national level. It was what doctors and nurses were giving feedback to the National Institution of Health and, and other CDCs and others that we were able to share the therapeutics that were working that we already had on hand. We're looking at businesses that stayed uh, on the job, grocery store workers, who even before there were mask requirements at these stores were still at their jobs, making sure people had the things that they needed. Americans stepped up and responded to this, uh, this epidemic, this pandemic, valiantly. But yet, mainstream media continues to criticize our response, and I'm hearing that from these professionals all over, and then law enforcement. Now, I went on a ride-along with Sandy Springs Police Department recently, and spent uh, half a day with them uh, at their department and riding along. And I can tell you, the, the morale in, in the police department is, is volatile at this moment because of the attacks that they're under from uh, the media, the attacks that they're under from uh, you know, certain groups. The majority of these people are law-abiding, uh, freedom-loving, God-fearing Americans who are there doing a service To our nation and to our individuals. And it pains me and it pains them to hear the criticism that they receive uh, from many in the media out there today. And so what I'm hearing from these people in in those those industries, in those areas, and even in, in different areas of our state is, I thought we did pretty good. Why am I always being condemned for this? And I think it's time they all stand up and we say, thank you. Thank you, America, for the way you responded. And, but the biggest thing they want is just acknowledge, hey, I make a, I'm making a difference. They need to feel that what they did is making a difference, and we need to help them with that. The other thing that we can do and uh, to help people get back to normal is dealing with testing, but we need to make sure we have testing that is uh, some type of testing that provides an almost immediate response to whether you have COVID or not. I know that Disney is actually working with some pharmaceutical companies to come up with instantaneous testing that will give you the results in less than five minutes. If we can get that, then you can see Disney parks reopening full scale because there's the ability to test people as they're in line going into the parks and and just coded on their armband. That would give us the ability to test people going into work on a daily basis And my understanding is they're very close to coming up with a test. I know there's already a test that gives you the results in 15 minutes. I took one of those tests at the White House before I flew with the president on Air Force One a few weeks ago. And so if we can get that down to a one to five minute test and we can make those easily available, um, I think that takes a lot of the fear factor away and it helps us to get fully back to normal. And as, as I've said earlier, we need to do something about unemployment benefits. I think we need to come up with a ratio. A ratio on what was your last paycheck and you're getting a percentage of that not to pay people more to not be at work than to be at work, especially in places of Georgia. We can do those things, pull those things together. We can get back to normal, which normal in this nation is as exceptional far beyond any other country uh, in this nation. We've done good in our response to COVID. We've done better than any other nation I uh, Seeing the recovery of our economy outpace what even the experts have predicted shows the exceptionalism of Americans. And I think that's what they miss. They, they look at numbers, but they tend to forget that Americans are not risk adverse. They're willing to step out there and do what they need to do because Americans want to be free. They want to be prosperous and they want to give back to their communities. And that's what we're seeing, especially in Georgia, when Brian Kemp, uh, uh Oh, reopened business in Georgia, people flooded back out again. Some of them willing to take a little bit of risk just to make sure that we get this, uh, we get back to normal as soon as we can. If we can do that, I believe beyond a shadow of doubt, next year could be one of our greatest years that we've seen in this nation economically and getting ourselves back to normal.
4: Well, well said. And I, I appreciate those comments. I'd just like to conclude by thanking both uh, you, Congressman Loudermilk, and you, Congressman Scott. You know, for me, I would like to have been there in person, but your passion and your bias for action comes very loudly through the video, as it would if we were in person. And I can tell you that those actions that we've heard about today are going to make our localities better, our state better, and ultimately our nation's future better. So I want to thank you for that, but I also want to thank you for your longtime support of the financial services industry here in Georgia and also our business community as a whole, your leadership in Washington truly enables our state of Georgia to be annually recognized as being the top state for doing business. So thank you for all that you do and thanks for what you are going to do in the future.
6: Thank you. I also, want
4: to, thank you. I also want to invite everyone listening in today to join us tomorrow at 10.30 a.m. for the second installment of the Georgia Chamber's 2020 DC Fly-In, which will focus on topics of healthcare care and transportation. So again, thanks for everyone joining in today and for supporting the Georgia Chamber of Commerce and its work on behalf of the great state of Georgia. Thank
0: you. Thanks so much for joining us. We look forward to seeing you tomorrow. We would like to thank our Platinum Sponsors for this year's D.C. Fly-In, AT&T, Atlantic Gaslight, Delta, Georgia Electric Membership Corporation's family of companies, Georgia Power Company, and Google. Get smart during these trying times. Reduce your health care costs and offer a critical benefit to your employees. Learn more about the Chamber and Anthem Health's smart plan for businesses.
6: Go to georgiachamber.com smart for more information.